0: Greetings. My name is uh, Griffin Schaefer.
1: And I'm Scott Peterson. And this is episode two of Inside Quizzing. Uh, A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible.
0: Well, so we had an awesome meet this last weekend uh, over at ABC. So we certainly want to be talking about uh, some of the highlights and interesting findings that came out of uh, that very consequential and very fun uh meet. But before we go get into that, of course we've got, you know, memorization schedule and rules discussion and all kinds of other fun things packed into this episode. But before we get to that, I wanted to let our listeners know that we have an email address. Uh, so if you have any kind of questions about quizzing, either in general uh, or specific to the quizzing that we are talking about here, uh, or any sort of rules questions or material questions or, I don't know, I guess just questions in general. Um, I guess we could even field theologic, uh, theological questions uh, from time to time, I suppose. Uh, but feel free to use our email address for the show, which is iq at cbqz.org. So that's IQ for Inside Quizzing, and then cbqz for Christian Bible quizzing, uh, dot org. And Scott and I will get those, and we can answer them, which will be a very fun thing for us. And, of course, you want to do things that are fun for us, because that's what this podcast is all about. Uh, and speaking of things that are all about us, uh, the ABC
1: meet was pretty cool. It was really cool. It was fun to see everyone get together after the long break and quiz really well, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So what were, what were
0: some of, some of your, uh, your, your high moments, uh, high points of the meet? From You were in, you, you normally are in room one, but this time you uh, switched over to room three, so you had a little bit more time to run some
1: stats and, and run the meet a bit. But w- what was it like? Um, I do like not being in room one on occasion. Um, it's a diff- I get to see different types of quizzers, which is really nice. And then it also gives me the time to um, generate the stats so that we can flow into awards really fast. So I would expect that either at Meet 5 or District Champs, I'm either not in Room 1 at all or don't run finals or something of that nature. Yeah. What about you, Griffin? Did you have any cool observations from the Meet?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, for me in my room, uh, I mean, like we were talking about last week uh, in Episode 1, we were talking about... How this meet was both a critical meet, but also one that can be a little bit uh for a, a struggle because there's been so much time off. And I definitely got a feel for that, especially in Friday. Uh Friday's jumps, I think things got a little bit better towards the end of Friday and then into Saturday. But Friday's jumps, at least in my room and in room two, were, were fairly slow. Um, There were a handful of no jumps, uh, you know, not terribly surprising over Chapter 15, um, being that it's so large. Uh, But I mean, so that was definitely a a factor. I think people were precise in their jumping, which was good. Um, I didn't necessarily see a lot of additional errors in my room. Um, it was just that the jumping speed was a little bit slower, and I think a few more uh, no-jumps
1: uh, from my perspective. Yeah, it's reminding me that I should uh, add a few more stats that I keep personally, um, one of them being what's the accuracy, overall accuracy by meat. see if that's going up or going down. That would be interesting to look at. I saw quite a, quite a handful of no-jumps. Um, I think I had a, a quiz in prelims where there was six or eight no-jumps. Um, so that was surprising to me, but it's also... It can be an encouragement to quizzers because there are questions out there for you to get. Um, and it doesn't take a ton of study to be able to get those questions that are currently going as no jumps. Did you
0: experience a time in your room where you would ask a question and it would end up being a no jump and then you would, like, let's say a standard interrogative, you'd ask it, uh, count the five seconds. It'd be, it'd be called a no jump. You would provide the answer and at least one or two quizzers
1: would sort of simultaneously go, Oh, yeah. That happens on pretty much every question that a quizzer either gets wrong or is a no-jump. And I think it's human nature to – I mean, I think the quizzers are recognizing the answer as it's read, but that's a very different thing um, compared to, like, they could have gotten it beforehand or – I mean, there is – there are occasions where the quizzer did know the answer but did not feel confident enough to jump and see if it was the correct answer, but – I think we're just so conditioned to, like, our minds latch onto something once we know it. And so I think that's where you get the, ah, uh, exclamation once I read what the actual correct answer is. And I think that's why, for someone like me, whether I'm the quiz master or if I'm watching a quiz or coaching at internationals, it seems like there are times where a quizzer will jump and miss a question. And I'm like, I knew that one. I knew that one. but in re- And it sticks out in my mind, when in reality, there's probably one every two quizzes that is one that I knew that a quizzer got wrong. Um, And I think our minds are just built to latch on to these most memorable circumstances and then treat it as what is actually common, even though it's not.
0: Yeah. Well, in our, in our show notes, you had, you had raised a couple of very interesting questions. Um, I mean, I find them very interesting, Uh, but like you had asked what kinds of teams routinely make finals and what kind of teams routinely win meets. And I mean, you're, you know, the stats uh, guru uh, when it comes to a lot of this stuff. So, I mean, what kind of insights do you have
1: into those questions? It's really very simple. Um, In my experience, the teams that win meets are, it's almost always the team that has the best number two quizzer. Yes, absolutely. Because when it comes down to tough quizzing, so like in finals, um, even though the quizzers are some of our best quizzers, they usually push the jumping speed to a point where the accuracy is lower than it normally is, so maybe 60% accuracy. So because of that, it's rare for to see a lot of quiz outs in finals, and it means that there just aren't enough questions available because there's too many good quizzers involved. And when that's the case, third and fourth quizzers are usually rendered pretty moot, um, and it's up to who is the best number two quizzer because uh, you will see cases where the best quizzer on a team can quiz out or... Um, even if it's with two errors or maybe they'll get three, but it's what number two quizzer can be the most consistent. And that, that's almost always the team that wins.
0: Yeah. In my experience as a coach, uh, that, that holds extraordinarily true. We, I mean, I, I forget how many number of years I, I coached. I want to say it was. I don't know if it was a full rotation. I think it was less than a full rotation of the material. Um, but it was a, it was a number of years and we had for a few years, uh, we had what I would jokingly call, uh, privately, uh, I would jokingly call our 110 team where we had a quizzer who was, uh, extremely good. He was an international level quizzer, uh, had, uh, Pretty much the entire uh, material uh, memorized, and he was he was very good. And typically, he would quiz out most of the time. He would quiz out without error. Uh, occasionally, I don't know, maybe twenty percent of the time, he, he might get one error or something like that. But so so you're basically talking about typically a one ten, but sometimes a, a one hundred uh, point quiz. And pretty much the that was that was it. That was that was what the team was able to secure. And we never made it into finals, um, you know uh, it because 110 just was was although very consistent, it just wasn't enough and then one particular year we we had a good sort of depth to our roster and i I never really stacked teams um, I, I see the arguments for that. Um, I can see arguments both for and against it. Um, but we never really stacked our teams, uh, in terms of like, uh, front loading, uh, a bunch of, of the, the best quizzers, like the, say the top four quizzers onto, onto team one or something like that. And so one particular year we actually developed enough depth that we actually had on this, you know, one team. We actually had a, a, a second chair and even to some extent a third chair. Our third chair was getting about one question every, two quizzes or so, but second chair was getting, uh, you know, consistently one or two questions uh, every quiz. And we got into finals, I think almost every meet uh, that particular year. I mean, it makes such a a huge difference, even just a couple of those questions.
1: It absolutely does. And the third and fourth person bonuses add up really fast. If you have the depth of quizzer that can consistently get a question or two, even in a tough quiz. And it's just rare at the district level to have a, a, such a team constructed, even though um, there are two such teams that are among the top in our district at the moment. Um, it's still rare to see quizzers beyond the number two on a team get questions with any consistency in finals. But I think that, that reason is why I always enjoyed internationals quizzing so much um, when I was a quizzer, because the dynamic is much different um, and it's not the team with the best number two quizzer that wins you know it's usually the team with the most consistent production top to bottom, and often the winning team does not have the best quizzer in a quiz which is which sounds surprising, but the dynamic is just so much different internationals due to the super, super, super razor-fast jumping speeds. So right. I enjoyed it a lot. In some ways, I really do like
0: how that dynamic plays out at the district level, though, too, because uh, there is a certain uh, amount, actually a, a, a non-trivial amount of uh, in reason to encourage your second, third, and fourth chairs to memorize uh, uh, just a little bit more. Because, I mean, we're not talking about a, you know a, a night and day difference, uh, in terms of memorization that brings about a night and day difference in the the statistical placement at the end, we're not talking about, say, you know, go from memorizing five verses a chapter to memorizing the entire chapter, every chapter to make a difference. We're talking about uh, saying, you know, increase by 20, 30, 40 percent your memorization or even just picking up uh, five to 10 verses a chapter and you can become an extraordinarily important uh, second chair uh, on a team like that and i would even go so far as to say i i mean i i, I don't have the stats to back this up the the way you do but i would it, sort of my gut tells me that even if you didn't have a a consistent 90 in your first chair if you had somebody who could even score into the 60s or 70s but you had a strong second and third share that you might even do better than uh, a team
1: that was operating a little bit more front-loaded that could very well be um i'm looking at the stats right now and uh the team with the best and number three quizzer um their number three quizzer is actually averaging a 48 for the year which is very high now these three quizzers have not been together for all three meets so that could be part of the reason why they have such high averages individually but um The next best number three quizzer has a 31 average, and yet that team with the third quizzer who averages a 48 got sixth um, at this past meet. And so usually – I don't know how to say this. I mean it's really just the very, very top-end talent that can get the questions in finals. Um, And so, yeah.
0: Well, and that kind of leads us to the
1: second question um why do top teams struggle so
0: much at the end of meets um what's sort of the difference between uh i mean some of this is fairly obvious the 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 you've got the top uh the top three teams the the jumping is going to be a little bit faster um uh, but why do they why do you think there's so much struggle
1: I think there's a lot of reasons, and I kind of I phrased this question in a loaded way. Why do top teams struggle so much at the end of meets? I would bet that every team struggles at the end of meets, and it's because of um, it's a long day, it's a long weekend, and you can see that a lot of quizzers are just out of energy, and it's easy to quiz poorly when you're out of energy because it's harder to focus, um, it's harder to think fast, um, which is why I always encourage quizzers if. Doing well up until the end of the meet is important to you to get a decent amount of sleep on Friday night, to not eat a bunch of fried fast food on on Saturday lunch, and to stay hydrated. Yeah, stay away from the sodas and all that kind of good stuff.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, you can see the fatigue set in on on quizzer's faces uh, towards the end of Saturday. Um, there's a lot of work that they're doing, and a lot of a lot of mental work and a lot of physical work. Um, I think, I mean. At, at the same time, the, the competition is, is narrowing in a little bit. It's, it's getting sharper. It's getting harder, uh, towards the end. And then, uh, the pressure's on. I mean, it's, it's in room ones, uh, but unlike room one quizzes during prelims, you know, a whole lot bigger audience is showing up. There's a whole lot more just sort of mental
1: pressure, uh, involved in that situation as well. Oh, absolutely. There's a ton more pressure you're kind of pushing the teams through the funnel as they get further and further into semifinals. You know, if you're in quizzes H or I, it's win or go home. So there's a certain amount of desperation there. And then once you get into finals, I think the fact that um, those quizzes don't count for individual averages may also push the jumping speed up just a little bit. Yeah, I I would, almost certainly, I would think that would be true. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, uh, any other thoughts about the ABC meet?
1: Not really. I mean, I think my main... My main thought at the end of meet three every year is it feels like half the year is done, which it really is. Um, But when it comes down to individual averages, a tiny percentage of their individual averages are actually locked in. Yeah. Just 20% out of 100%. So it's a a huge amount left to go over just three meets. Yeah. So, I mean, this is
0: where, you know, this is where you would want, as a coach, you would want to encourage, or as a captain, encouraging your teammates, uh, don't, slack now this is actually the exact time of the year where you want to uh you know gird your loins a little bit more uh uh, buckle down just a little bit harder push through uh you know if you can gain an extra couple of percentage points uh on on numbers of of
1: of, uh versus memorized i think that'll do you a huge credit uh for for the year exactly it's right about now that if you're indigo montoya you switch the sword to your right hand (laughs) Yes. Great.
0: uh, Great reference. Well, and speaking of memorization, um, by my very rough calculation, we've got about five weeks before the next meet, which means about seven chapters uh, need to fit into that meet. I I think uh, I guess it's sort of up to the coach and the team and the quizzer to figure out exactly where to double up. But sort of my thought looking at the material is. I'd probably start with maybe like chapter one on its own and then double up two and three, four and five, six and seven, Then have a, and then at the end have a week for review. But uh, how would you would you do it that way? Would you spl- uh, split it up a different way?
1: I think, I think that would be a good way to split it up. I'd always want to leave myself as much time as I could to review because that's often the step that most quizzers don't do. And I liked the uh, focused time of not having to add new knowledge but being able to review old knowledge. And so I would definitely make sure that I have that review time. And I do know that most churches are helpful and set out a practice schedule for each of their quizzers. But I do know of quizzers that um, will go faster than what the schedule says that's given to them by their church just so that they can build in more review time for themselves at the end.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So looking at this week's uh, material then, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 1, uh, I, I'm already a little bit familiar with this material because my daughter has decided to join my son in memorizing a little bit and so she's picked up a couple of verses and it's always really cute to see uh you know a a six-year-old uh uh, put away a a couple of verses and then recite them back with references but of course you know i'm 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 being the worst coach in the world because uh it has to be word perfect with reference or it doesn't count um so i'm i'm probably being a horrible taskmaster uh but looking at chapter one is there anything i mean 24 verses was there anything that sort of stood out to you
1: not really. I mean, I look at how many verses are in the chapter, as you just said. So there are going to be some 20s. I look at where the key verses are. It looks like there's a couple key verse pairs in here. If I'm a key verse quizzer, I want to identify those and compare them to how other key verse pairs start to see if, is there another finish these two verses starting with praise? Or is there is there another one starting with now? Um, just so that you can know how fast you can jump on a very specialized question type, like finish these two verses.
0: Yeah. I would take a look, uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I would, I would also take a look at unique words in particular. There's a lot of, um, great, uh, I mean, in the material that I'm looking at, uh, uh unique words are colored uh, this sort of brilliant blue color, so they visually stand out to me as well as you know uh, thematically standing out to me or or uh, important standing out to me in terms of questions that can be raised on these things so there's a lot of of the those sorts of very simple interrogatives that are going to be very fast uh, to jump on that you could you could pull out of this material you know one f- uh, one five abounds uh, through whom or uh, abounds where, I suppose, would work, Um, throughout where from verse 1, you know, these
1: sorts of things, uh, gracious what uh, from 11. Despaired of what in verse 8? Yeah, yeah. Another thing I would do when I was reading over material for the first time is find words that appear a lot, but also maybe in different forms. So I'm just seeing right now that comfort and comforts and comforted appear a lot, right, in verses 3 through 7. And when you have similar words, either repeated or similar forms of words in a close proximity to each other, it can make it hard to quote those verses because your mind latches onto a word and might shoot you to the wrong place. Um, And I would always make sure to spend extra time on those sorts of passages so that if I heard comforts us, I don't confuse it with any any other comfort or... Um, comforted, my mind just goes to the one location where comforts us appears. Um, I always, I liked finding a hard to memorize passage and spending extra time on it because I felt like I, I was gaining an advantage.
0: Yeah. And I mean, speaking of the word comfort or comforts and comforted and so forth, uh, you know, comfort appears, uh, several different times in, in chapter one here, Uh, Comforts, plural, only appears once in the chapter, uh, and comforted, where did it go? Yeah, there, in 1-6 only appears once. Um, So you could end up, I I could see a very confusing uh, question where if you've got a, uh, say, a, a chapter reference question on comforts, uh, it could be very confusing if you, if you haven't uh, disambiguated between comfort and comforts and comforted where that shows up in, in what verse and, and pulling that, uh, pulling that together. I could see that getting, uh, very confusing very quickly.
1: Yeah. And there could be a chapter reference that uses the word comforts, but the quizzer jumps after only two syllables and the quizmaster has just said comfort and maybe hasn't finished that pluralization um and if you've kind of read through it you might you might remember that oh it, it is a chapter keyword and that's probably where I should start my thinking and not on comfort. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: There's, uh, you know, in general, of course, it's a, a Pauline uh, epistle, so you know it reads and flows very much like First uh, Corinthians uh, in, in, in a lot of the same phraseology and the same audience. Obviously, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and and so forth. I mean, it's the, the structure of the content is is gonna feel very familiar uh, obviously to anybody you know memorizing first Corinthians but really uh, any of the other uh, Pauline letters yeah I really have nothing else to add <laughs> yeah um, any do you spot any sort of other tricky sorts of things I mean something that kind of jumped out at me was in seventeen and eighteen uh, the yes yes no no sort of stuff could be a little bit tricky there, but otherwise um yeah, I mean there's a couple of key verses, take a peek at maybe 9 through 12 um has some wonderful key phrases uh buried in there. I, I especially like deadly peril. Um both of those words being key uh or unique. Uh, sorry, I keep calling them key, but yeah, they're they're unique. Um those are kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. Um it looks like a pretty a pretty memorable chapter. Lots of uh unique words and chapter keywords. I would also like when reading through, I see that um, verse 16 has, doesn't have a lot of colored words, um, no unique phrases or chapter keywords or unique words. Um, and so I would start searching the material for where things like I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, like where those bits and pieces might be elsewhere in the material, because I'm seeing a great opportunity for a reference question. Like I wanted to visit you where, or I wanted to visit you when, um, on my way to where, And so if there's another place in the material where On My Way to Insert Location appears, then those would both lend themselves very well to being a reference question.
0: Yeah, and in particular, I mean, even just in this chapter, uh, verses 15 and 16, I wanted to visit you, uh, or I wanted to what, um, might be a great question. Uh, You know, a, a chapter verse reference question, and very confusing between those two, especially since they're two verses right
1: next to each other. Exactly. And that's a very classic type of chapter and verse reference question to write. It's the same phrase, and it's a consecutive verses, and it is specifically testing whether the quizzer can differentiate between those two two verses when given just the reference. And so that's totally a thing that a question writer would want to write. Yeah.
0: Well, the other thing that I notice about this, I mean, leave it to Paul to talk about theology, right? Um, there's a, a, quite a few mentions of God, our Father, and quite a few mentions of uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Uh That happened throughout the material, but especially in the uh, earlier bits of of chapter one here, which sort of raises the question of sort of two questions in my mind that I wanted to talk about in terms of the rules discussion uh, section of the podcast. And one was the deity rule, uh, which did come up a couple of times uh, in in my room was was kind of fascinating. Um, It doesn't come up all the time. It doesn't come up every every meet. But uh, when it does in the rare uh, cases where it does, it's very interesting. And making sure that we clarify the right deity and how that works is is very interesting. But then that also kind of leads us into a sort of a general pronoun uh, clarification. Uh, if the answer is Christ and somebody says he... Uh, there's a little bit of a switch of the rule where in the past we would have said clarify your pronoun, but now we're saying clarify he, uh, but then uh, kind of that might lead right into the DD rule. So I guess let's start with maybe the, the pronunciation clarification. What does the rule book currently say
1: about that? Where to start? <laughs> it's a big uh, topic. <laughs> it is. And I've had conversations with people, and we have not come to an agreement always, but I think clarifying pronouns first starts with the question writer because there's nothing in the rule book that says every pronoun has to be clarified if it appears in a question, like in an interrogative or a multiple answer or something. Um, there's really not guidance on what to do. And so generally, when, when question writers are writing questions, if the pronoun is pretty important, like if you're asking who went to Macedonia and the answer is he, well, they'll make sure that you clarify it. But if it's um, who went to Macedonia with them? Well, maybe they won't make you clarify the them, right? And so I, I've um, I've been asked the question: How much latitude either does the quizmaster have, or should the quizmaster have or exercise when asking a question to change which clarif- which pronouns need a clarification? And I think it's a tough it's a tough area because as a quizmaster, I generally don't like to be making any changes to questions in the heat of the moment because I think it's very important to appear fair. And so even if my intent is not to help a certain team, I wouldn't want to switch out a particular question um, unless there was a clear reason to do it. I wouldn't want to change which pronouns are clarified if I can do it. Um, so that's kind of where I, where it starts, is the question writer has to make decisions of which, clarifying, which pronouns are necessary to clarify. I do know of other denominations of Bible quizzing where every single Pronoun is clarified um, and needs to be clarified for an answer to be correct. And that's probably too far. Yeah,
0: I mean, uh, even well, I mean, what about ambiguous pronouns, right? Or um, ones that require interpretation? I, I mean, I, I'm I'm very staunchly against the idea of a of a quiz. Despite I, I have a master's in theology, and I'm d- I'm deeply against the notion of quizmasters making theological judgments. Um, from the, from the officials table. But like, you know, in, in chapter one, verse 21, uh, you know, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. And so I could say like, he what, uh, although this wouldn't really clarify who anointed us, right? He. Well, does that would need to be clarified? But then do you clarify it as God or Christ? Uh, and that sort of leads us into a theological discussion.
1: Yeah. And that that's actually a really good – that's a really good example because it's not very clear whether it is God or Christ. And so I think that would be a tough call for a question writer of – I mean, you definitely want to include anointed in a question somehow, but you also don't want to force the quizzers to have to interpret things.
0: Yeah. I mean, who anointed us is just sort of a, a question that sort of – it's begging to be asked because it's – I mean, anointed being the unique word. But uh, I don't think I could ask that question. I, I just – I because again, again, going back to the deity role, which we haven't talked about yet, uh, you know, God and, and Christ are not uh, interchangeable in that way. I suppose you could start with God and, and then move on to Christ if, if you didn't get it right uh, based on the quizmaster's interpretation. But I still dislike the idea of a quizmaster having to make that level of interpretation.
1: Yeah, I probably would still write "Who Anointed Us" as an interrogative, with the answer being God. But I can see it being a tough call. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I've run into is, let's say this verse said, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. God anointed us. And you ask the question, who anointed us? And the quizzer says, he anointed us, which is not in the material that I just made up. Can a quiz master ask for the clarification of a pronoun if that pronoun does not exist in the material? And so that's why when I'm writing questions, I try to make it very clear if there's a pronoun that is in my answer that I'm going to need to have clarified. I put the clarification in parentheses so that it's right in front of me. And if a quizzer is answering a different question that doesn't have such a clarification, um, I don't ask them to clarify their pronoun. I just assume that they are inserting a pronoun where there actually is a proper noun and I just let them get to it.
0: Okay. Does,
1: does that make sense? So
0: in other words, like uh, maybe take it to a different verse and give me another example.
1: All right. Let's Well, go to, 1 Corinthians 16:21. I Paul write this greeting in my own hand. So let's say I wrote the interrogative, "Who write this greeting in my own hand?" And the quizzer gets up and says, "He writes this greeting in my in his own hand," or something like that. Okay. Well, they've they've given me a pronoun, and I might deem the rest of it to have fulfilled everything that I need. But I need them to have the Paul. Well, some quizmaster may say, "Can you clarify he?" Because they're helping the quiz the quizzer get to Paul. But in my mind, he doesn't appear in this verse. There is no he to clarify. And so I am not ever going to say to the quizzer, can you clarify he? I will just either I'll either say more or again and wait for them to get to Paul. Oh, interesting.
0: So you wouldn't even say clarify your pronoun uh, or or clarify. You wouldn't even say the word clarify. Uh, you would just say more again to try to get them to go to Paul. That's
1: interesting. Because in my mind, they've incorrectly quoted that verse. They haven't given me a valid pronoun answer that needs to be clarified see I guess I would look at it and say well if it's a, I mean if it's
0: a quote question that's a sort of another topic but if it's a standard interrogative uh, Paul and he uh, I mean he is correct it's just not precise enough um, I mean its it is it is an answer and it's the correct dish answer it's just not correct enough um, and so that's that seems to me like the whole point of, of the the pronoun clarification to be able to say well they, they got it right but they actually need to provide me the name uh, to disambiguate the he from something else.
1: And I totally get that. And I think another reason that this is the convention that I've adopted is for feasibility. Mm-hmm. Because if a, if I'm given a pronoun for this verse, it kind of will throw me off because I'm not expecting to have to ask for a clarification because there is no clarification, and I don't want to. Ha- I don't want the quizzer to suffer through or have to endure a few seconds of silence while I figure out if I'm going to prompt them for a clarification or not. I feel like I'm taking away from their 30 seconds. And so I think it's yeah. it's cleanest to just not ask for that clarification rather than in the moment figure out if it is appropriate for me to ask them for a clarification.
0: Now, what are some things regarding not the deity rule, but purely the, the pronoun clarification rules? Uh, what are some things that a quiz master
1: is prohibited from, from doing? I can't think of anything specific to pronoun. I mean, the quiz master can say, can you clarify and then specify the exact pronoun that needs clarification
0: okay and so i mean they could say uh, can you clarify he can you clarify your pronoun clarify your pronoun or just clarify or just more or again or something like that all those would be valid responses that a quizzer should be anticipating
1: yes um but even further than that the quiz master both asking the quizzer to clarify their pronoun and specifying the pronoun that needs clarification is under quizmaster must. So if there is a he that needs to be clarified, and the quizzer has said he, the quizmaster must say, "Can you clarify he?" and can and the quizmaster should not say something that has less information like, "Can you clarify?" or "Clarify your pronoun." But then going
0: back to your example from uh 1 Corinthians 16, uh that wouldn't apply there, right? You the quizmaster wouldn't be required to say clarify he? Correct. Because mm. I don't think because I don't think there's a pronoun there that needs to be clarified. Oh I see. So you're saying that that the pronoun clarification is only based on pronouns that happen to be in the material, not necessarily pronouns that quizzers supply.
1: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So like so like in 1 Corinthians 1617, if there's a multiple answer, who arrived and a quizzer gets up and says, they, I'm not going to say, can you clarify, they, I'm just going to look at the quizzer. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's a, a right answer of the way to handle the, should a quiz master ask for a clarification of a pronoun that is not in the material, but makes sense for the, for this question, you know, mm-hmm. but
0: I think, I think some of it also comes back to, um, I think a lot of it comes back to where I have asked for clarification of pronouns where they haven't been in the material is where a quizzer is is obviously quoting the verse, thinks they quoted it, uh, put in a, a pronoun instead of the actual name. Um, and if I don't say anything, I, I know their time is going to expire. So it's sort of a, a way that I, I get them to focus on what they're supposed to actually provide back to me. Um, I suppose if, if I, I, I mean, it's certainly extremely important that I do it consistently, but, um, uh, but yeah, I'm I worry that if I don't say anything, they're going to think there there's something more, uh, beyond the verse they have to continue quoting that sort of thing, uh, as opposed to just going back and replacing a a a, 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 a simple pronoun with a with a proper uh proper noun.
1: Yeah, that's true. I think I would bet that clarif- clarifying of pronouns and what the quizmaster should say. All of that arose because maybe in verse 1 it says Jesus went to these people, and then he starts talking. And then in verse 3 or verse 4, he is used to refer to Jesus. And if you're going to ask a question where the answer is he, and you need the quizzer to clarify to Jesus, which is multiple verses prior to the verse that the bulk of this question is in, then you should give the quizzer some sort of prompt to help them along with that. Yeah. And so, And so the situation where I'm asking a question from a single verse— there's no pronouns in it. And a quizzer just throws in a pronoun to me. I'm like asking them for a clarification. This is not the situation that this was created for. <laughs> yeah,
0: so. I can see that. I can see that. Well, and then to complicate things even more, uh, God essentially become the word God essentially becomes a, a pronoun that requires clarification, but under the deity role. So let's dive into that one a little bit. Yeah. Um, where to start? Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and who? So, um,
1: should I start at the top? Yeah, just go how for I, it. How I think about the deity rule. Um, so, right, what the text says is the correct person of the deity must be given. The quizzer may not move between persons of the deity when answering. So, already we see how difficult this is, a rule to write and to apply. Because, I mean, for good reason, it's one of the more complicated concepts in the Christian faith, right? And in the theology. Um, three persons, but one person. And yet quizzing is a competition based on text, and we don't want to allow the quizzer to jump between different persons um, they're supposed to be answering about. This makes total sense if, you know, you have names of the apostles like Peter and James and John. You know, if Peter did something and you ask the quizzer who did something, they can't say James or John, and it's crystal clear. But it gets muddied when we talk about the deity and the person of God and all the different potential names. So I think right at the top, it helps to admit that this is a difficult thing because it's difficult in theology, it's difficult to explain. And then once you get to quizzing, you need to find a way to write a rule that handles with this difficult concept in a fair way to everyone that can be consistently applied by officials. And so it's it's just a tough way to begin right off the bat. Um, but the rule rulebook goes on to say, if a quizzer refers to any person of the deity as either God or Lord, these must be clarified by the quizzer within 30 seconds when the text requires a more specific answer. Jesus and Christ may be interchanged, and the quizzer will be called correct. So the way that I see it most commonly applied, right up top it says, if the quizzer refers to any person of the deity as God or Lord. So most people take that as... They infer that God and Lord are interchangeable. And so most often, if you see God or if you see Lord, and the quizzer uses either one, they will just be counted correct and not required to get to the exact God or Lord. And usually that applies also to Jesus and Christ. And kind of by extension, it often, not just Jesus and Christ are interchangeable, but Jesus, Christ, Jesus Christ, and Christ Jesus, those four often end up as interchangeable. Um, some quizmasters may be a little bit more strict and just look at the quizzer or say again and let the quizzer get to the exact name of it. Do you have any thoughts so far?
0: No, I mean, this pretty much is, is fully in line. I'm sort of, as you're talking, I'm, uh, it's, it's fully in line with, with, with how I've been ruling. It's I'm, as you're talking about the theology of it, I'm, I'm sort of hearkening back to Augustine and a, a couple of the other, uh, early church theologians and uh remembering that sort of uh phraseology of saying um the the father is god uh jesus is god the holy spirit is god the father is not mm-hmm. the son the son is not the holy spirit the holy spirit is not god um those sorts of things so in other words uh god the the word god becomes almost like a pronoun god or the lord becomes a pronoun that's safe to start with. And if that's the answer, great, you're fine. But if we're actually talking about, say, God, the Father, or Jesus in particular, or the Holy Spirit in particular, uh, there has to be a clarification essentially to the specific point within the the Trinity.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, God is treated as the top of the quizzing deity hierarchy, not because we're singling out that person of the deity, but because that's the most generic word used to refer to any person of the deity.
0: Well, and I would go, I would take it a step further and say, God is the generic word of the Trinity and father,
1: uh, father or God, the father is one person of the Trinity. Got, yeah. I think that would make sense. So in general, if a quizzer says God or Lord, um, they literally cannot be wrong at that point. They might be right. They might have to get more specific. Um, and then as they get more specific, um, they have to be careful about um, not switching between persons of the deity. And most often, if the quizzer needs to get more specific than God or Lord, it's very clear which person of the deity is being talked about. And so if they give a if they refer to a specific deity that's a different one than is needed, then they would be incorrect at that point. Um, there's also a little a clause about if there's a special name of the deity given in the text, which imparts specific character qualities or attributes. Um, the specific name must be given, and the examples are the Lord God Almighty, the Bread of Life, Spirit of the Living God. And in those cases, it's more strict because the quizzer may not state any other such names, um, any other special names, even if it, if those other names are both in context and referring to the same deity. Um, and so, yeah, and so that can sound harsh, but usually when those special names are used— um it's pretty distinct and pretty clear what's being asked for and it will help the quizzer remember what the correct one is yeah i feel like i haven't covered it all because i didn't talk for very long but but i th- I don't know i think
0: that's pretty much it i mean basically start that so the strategy is it when in doubt obviously review 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 and quote it correctly the first time but if barring that you know start with god and lord as a safe first bet uh, you might be right in for for that alone and then if if uh you're asked for a clarification of the deity, then you uh have to drop down into either God the Father God the son God the holy spirit and 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 if there's a specific phraseology used um call it a poetic reference to one of the entities of the uh, or entities not the right word, but one of the uh, uh, tr- uh, aspects of the Trium God. Aspect's not the right word either. See, this is all the, the theology coming back to bite me here. Um, but I can't use the words to describe the words I want to talk about. Anyway, uh, if, if, there, if there's a specific poetic phrase used to describe uh, the Trinity or or uh, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, then use that instead.
1: Yeah, and I think sometimes, I mean, it's a pretty common occurrence to see our Lord Jesus Christ or our God and Father Jesus Christ or the God and Father Um, and in those cases, I usually just, as long as the quizzer stays in the correct deity, I let them keep giving me answers, but I usually force them to get to the exact one. Yeah. Yeah. As as soon as extra wording like that is being applied. Well, and then take
0: a look at verse three, uh, second Corinthians one, three praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Um, there's going to be some wonderful questions that can come out of that verse
1: yeah and praise be is a unique phrase so praise be to whom
0: yeah (laughs) multiple answer of that one so yeah i mean basically at that point you are praise be to whom multiple answer god and father of no well no 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 i guess it's it's not multiple answer there's not an and god and father that's one of our lord jesus christ the father of compassion and the God of all comfort, that would be a singular answer and would require the rest of the verse.
1: So basically, like a multiple answer doesn't have to have an and. It just has to have two answers to the interrogative. In this case, I would say that praise be to whom? I would say the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the main answer, and the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort is merely a clarification. Yeah. So I think this is, this is one of the rare cases where when the rulebook says a clarification of a single answer is not a multiple answer, I think that's what would be here. Um, however, I think if I wrote the question as praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom or what, I think you might be able to argue that that one is a multiple answer, because at that point you're kind of asking for two qualities or two descriptions of the of the person. And I think you could yeah. argue that the Father of Compassion and the God of All Comfort are two such descriptions.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I mean, the interesting thing, uh, praise be to who... Uh, is key enough uh, because of praise be, like you were talking about, two-word key phrase. Um, And then, of course, praise be to who, you could say uh, God, and you would technically be almost correct, but you would need a whole lot more to be added. Um, So, I mean, we're essentially just describing God,
1: but in a very poetic way. Yeah, and so it's verses like these that I would spend extra time on so that you don't stumble over this very specific wording of the deity. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, with the deity rule kind of packed away, um, there were a couple of other stuff, uh, other questions, and, and and other parts of the material that we were actually talking about a little bit earlier today uh, that I think we both found fascinating. Uh, one of them was uh, 1541, First uh, 1 Corinthians 1541. You want to walk us through that one?
1: Yeah. So, as you're if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably helpful to pull up a verse like this because um, I'm not going to read the whole thing through, but. I asked an interrogative call that was, what has one kind of splendor? And the answer I was looking for was the sun. Well, a quizzer jumped on what has one kind of splendor and proceeded to start by giving me the moon and the stars. And my initial inclination was, I bet you this quizzer has given me an incorrect answer. And so they're incorrect at this point. But when I looked at the verse, the verse is the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. So i I didn't really think that the quizzer saying moon or stars was actually incorrect, because you could argue that the moon has one kind of splendor, has one another, another one kind of splendor, and the stars have another one kind of splendor, and the quizzer eventually got to sun, and so I counted them correct, but in hindsight, um, I would have made the exact same ruling, but in hindsight, I don't like the question that I wrote, because I think it's it's not a very good test of the material, because I really was looking for the answer sun, and if I wrote a question where the quizzer can give other very specific nouns and not be incorrect, then I don't think I've written a very good question. Um, and I, I don't really think that there's a better way to write this question that has the form that I wrote wrote it as. I mean, you could write the sun has what, um, but it was just an interesting situation because I thought the quizzer had given me an incorrect answer, but I really couldn't count them incorrect. And it led into another kind of philosophical question about, verbatim versus meaning. Do you want to delve into that? Yeah, well,
0: I mean, I, even before we, we drop too far into that, I mean, maybe this is what you're referring to, but I, I looked at that because, uh, I mean, when you were asking me a few hours ago about the this particular verse, I sort of looked at it and, and agreed with you that I thought the question was, was invalid in its original form, but that it could be asked, I think, as a perfectly valid multiple answer question. Although one that I personally wouldn't write, um, for an entirely different reason and, you know, a little bit more on the philosophy side there. But I mean, if you say, you know, one kind of splinter, and I'm assuming that's key, right? Of splinter is a two word key phrase. So yeah, one kind of splinter is, 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 is key enough. So if you say, what has one kind of splendor? I think there is a multiple answer, a valid multiple answer uh, that that comes out of that sun, moon, and stars. But I'm not a big fan of writing questions like that because um, I'm not a fan of splitting up the material like that, or what I would call like sort of split up multiple answers where, and I know, I mean, I, I know they're completely valid and they happen all the time. It's just sort of, it's just sort of a me thing. I don't particularly like them, um, but where this uh, i I, I want to have a multiple answer
1: sort of flow together where the parts of the multiple answer are a little bit closer to a quote. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and I think this this topic and the next one are kind of melding together because they're both combined in this single question. Um, I think one thing to touch on first before the split multiple answers is I think you can argue that there are multiple answers to the question, what has one kind of splendor? But quizzing is very, very much a text-based verbatim um, competition, just, just because there needs to be fair and objective and consistent and things like that. And I think asking what has one kind of splendor and expecting multiple answers of sun, moon, and stars is expecting interpretation by the quizzer, which is a vague um, qualifier for something to be an invalid question. And I think if you asked most people in quizzing, they would not consider what has one kind of splendor to be a valid multiple answer because of the interpretation required to make it a multiple answer.
0: Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I definitely don't like the question. I think it's very confusing. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it, it it goes back to, I think, an interpretation of the multiple answer rule
1: in, in to some degree. It does. And there are very various... Various ways to interpret how multiple answers are defined. some people are much more liberal and some people are much more strict about what they consider to be a multiple answer. Um, but yeah, and then talking about split multiple answers, um, you see them a lot like I'm looking at first corinthians fifteen forty three and it has it is sown in dishonor comma it is raised in glory, semicolon it is sown in weakness comma it is raised in power and so would you consider it is what to be one of those split multiple answers?
0: Yeah. And I mean, and that's one that's so clearly, I mean, I would, it, it is technically split up, but I mean, that one is, it screams out to be a multiple answer chapter verse reference question that I would, I would go along with it. But I think, I think part of it also is there's nothing that's missed. Uh In other words, like, to answer that question it it is what you pretty much have to quote every word out of 1543 you're not skipping parts of 1543 and like and then sort of reassembling it after the fact Um, Now, granted, you could just say, in dishonor, uh, raised in glory, sown in weakness, and so forth, but it would just be easier to just quote the verse, and you'd get it correct. So, I mean, 1543, for me, I would be very comfortable with writing it, even though technically, yeah, it sort of is that split-up verse. But there's other ones where, you know, like, I guess 1541 is sort of the the far other side of that spectrum, where I'd feel very uncomfortable about writing 1541. Uh, And there's other ones that are sort of of in the middle on that spectrum. And I guess a lot of those, I know, I know, I know a lot of questions come out of split, uh, multiple answers and they're, you know, they're, they're valid. I just, I don't know. I have a personal hangup about writing this.
1: Yeah. I think first Corinthians seven eighteen is a good example. It has, was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. And so was a man what, and he should not, what would both be multiple answers of the split variety i'm not sure if either of them need to be a reference multiple answer or not but you could definitely answer each of those by just quoting a portion a non-contiguous portion of a single verse
0: yeah okay uh
1: let's see what was the other what were some of the other stuff that we came up with yes yeah, so, so you and i were talking about how um split multiple answers aren't your favorite and i said um, i understand that sentiment and i know that i am guilty of. Um, kind of forcing multiple answers when I see them in the material. So when I see a multiple answer, I find a way to write a question on it, even if the flow or something else about the question isn't as high a quality as, say, most of my interrogative questions. So one example is I will write B-what, B-E-what, as um, a reference question if it is a multiple answer one, but I will almost never write it if it is a single answer because I consider there to be... Tons more single-answer CVRs that are more meaty or more, I think, that test the material better um, than be what. But for reference multiple answers, there's fewer. And so I'm fine including a reference question with such um, a vague single word in the question. And I think that also extends to other question types. On interrogatives, sure, I could find a three-word unique phrase that is technically valid to start an interrogative with. But unless it flows well and has a good amount of meaning to it, I'm probably not going to write it in favor of all of the other interrogatives that I can write. Yeah.
0: Let's see. So then moving on from our rules discussion, uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about jumping speeds and other variables all combining to bring accuracy of any bracket to equality with other brackets, which I thought was a very interesting sort of idea to dive into, this idea of saying, and this kind of goes, I I think this all sort of started from some of your stats research about uh, quizzing accuracy. Is that right?
1: Yeah, because most, the accuracy for brackets, so for prelims or semifinals or constellation A or constellation B, they're usually very close. They hover around 70%, and it's rare to have any year Where the bracket is outside of, like below 65% accuracy or above 75% accuracy. Um, And so when you mentioned it in a comment on Facebook that um, it's a very, very, very close range, it got me thinking. And I think there are a number of variables that work together to bring accuracies so close to like that 70% mark. I think you can start first at the structure of quizzing where um, if you if you get four right, you're quizzed out and you can't answer any more. And if you get three wrong, you're aired out and can't get any more wrong. So that limits – like if there's a really good quizzer, it limits the number of correct questions they can get in a quiz. And if you have a really, I guess, bad quizzer, it limits the number of errors that they can get in a quiz, which is working to keep the accuracy of any quiz close to the accuracy of any other quiz, right? So you're kind of creating bands for yourself to begin with.
0: Yeah, there's um, definitely an upper and lower bound
1: limit, yeah. And then – um there's the notion of toss-ups. So if a team errors, it goes to a toss-up, which is usually going to be easier because there's fewer people jumping on that question. And so it kind of forces the fact that after an error, we're going to raise the chances that there's a correct question. And by the way, all my accuracies don't include bonuses because I I count those as freebies. Um, So that's another thing, the concept of toss-ups that I think pushes accuracy kind of towards a equilibrium, if you will. But then I think quizzers just kind of have some intuitive feel about a quiz. Like everyone wants to quiz out and no one wants to air out, but you want to win the quiz. And I think you kind of unconsciously adjust your jumping speed based on the situation and the strength of your opponent um, and your knowledge of the material to kind of subtly keep um, keep at that same accuracy. I don't know if I described it very well. I think um, if you play baseball um, and you've looked at the science of how the human eye catches a fly ball you're basically keeping the horizon at a constant point while you move around the field so so the ball is moving through the air and it's going up and it's coming down in a parabola but you're moving in such a way so that your line of sight stays in a constant um way point relative to the ball which enables you to catch the ball and i think something not quite the same but similar ish is happening in quizzes where um Everyone's subtly adjusting their jumping speeds um, to get to a certain sort of accuracy, but subconsciously. Because they're not saying to, to everyone else in the quiz, let's get to 70% accuracy. They're trying to quiz out. They're trying to win. Um, but I think that's just kind of how it happens. Yeah. Yeah, that all seems pretty likely. To- and I think um, another reason it can happen is in semifinals, you might say, well, um, the jumping speed is going to be faster in semifinals because these are better teams. So I'd expect the accuracy to be lower. But I think that is pretty equally combat by the fact that these are the better quizzers. So they can jump at a faster speed and still um, score. And then I think that same thought carries down to each of the, the consolation brackets. These quizzers may, may not be as strong, but they're only going to jump slow, slower to the point where they can get a good accuracy. And I yeah. think it's all, it's all ruled by the four correct, three air out and wanting to win a quiz. Right.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the more material you have memorized, the higher confidence level you're going to have, which means uh, the jumps that you get, you're going to have a higher probability of getting them, even though, uh, or getting the question right, based on just your, uh, your sort of um, internal uh, psyche going into the jump. Yeah, that
1: also seems, it's almost like a self-balancing system. Yeah, I mean, I think if you had computers quizzing, who had perfect knowledge of the material, um, I still think that they would adjust their jump speeds to a point um, where accuracy is less than hundred percent in an attempt to beat the other computers. Oh
0: yeah, absolutely. And I mean, right? not, not totally joking. Sometimes I wonder if we have computers quizzing right now.
1: Oh yeah. Some quizzers have been very close to that.
0: Yeah. Very, very accurate. Very, uh, I mean, it's impressive to see uh, what some of these quizzers are able to do. It's, it's
1: very, it's impressive. Looks like we've got one more topic for the day, and that's contextual knowledge when answering questions. And I was talking about this with Jeremy Swingle, how because quizzing is based on verbatim reading of the material and questions are often on a single verse or even a portion of a single verse, quizzers kind of develop this tunnel vision when they're hearing a question read or when they're answering it, where they don't think of the context of the material or a meaning of a chapter or larger themes that could help them answer questions. So I think in most cases, the tunnel vision and just verbatim recall of what you've memorized is going to be the way to score well. But there are times where, you know, you'll see a quizzer jump on, she was, um, she was the, and the quizzer will start thinking like, okay, there's not a ton of females mentioned in, um, in the Bible. So what are the, the main females mentioned in this chapter? So like in Matthew, you're like, oh, it's... You know, can I think of something with Mary or I think quizzers that have that ability to think in a more general um, contextual way can have a little leg up. Um, And I see it on no jumps where I think all these kids have been through Sunday school years and years and years and years. And and the answers obviously got to something, but none of them are jumping because they did not recognize the question as it it was asked, like the words. Um, Even if they took a step back, they could totally understand the meaning and be like, oh, It's God or it's Jesus. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. I think, I think even this is where I I wonder if review on the uh, van or or car ride uh, or bus ride to the meet uh, can combat this to some degree. This idea of, you know, you've, you've, you've done, you've put in the memorization work, but just reviewing the material, reading it over um, saying it over in your head once or twice or something like that. It gets you just a, just that little tiny bit closer to recognition and comfortability right before the meet starts.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I I don't think it takes a whole lot of extra work um, to really do a lot better. And I think one of the one key piece of advice I'd give is I don't think you need to set a study schedule where you study for a set amount of time every single day. I think that's way too much. I mean, it's too much to ask of adults, let alone teenagers. Um, and so one thing that I always did is I had a, an audio recording of the material, and there would totally be days where I didn't want to quote anything. I didn't want to memorize anything. I didn't want to do all, any of that stuff. I would just put the material on. And when it's just on, even if I'm not focusing on it, I would still um, be slowly absorbing the material in, admittedly, a less efficient way than if I was sitting down and reading it or writing it or memorizing it or quoting it. But it was still something that I did. And so I think um, on days where you don't feel like studying much or if you're feeling discouraged, just listening to three chapters can be very, very helpful.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I've I've noticed that both in uh, teams that I've coached, uh, but then also in individuals that I've I've worked with. Just being able to hear the material, even uh, you know even as late as on the ride to the meet, uh, can actually make a noticeable difference in in how uh, folks are able to perform uh, within the quizzes. Well, and on that note, um, I wanted to remind everybody, of course, once again, if you have any questions of any kind, if you want to sort of uh, sling difficult questions at Scott and easy questions at me, uh, send emails to IQ for inside quizzing, IQ at CBQZ.org. And uh, we would love to hear from folks who are listening to us. And on that note, I will, uh, you know, as I suppose is my tradition now uh, in episode two, as I I did in episode one, I will close us by reading from the material from this week, uh, from this week. Uh, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles Uh, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive
1: from God. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Griffin. Happy studying, everyone. Bye.